Welcome back to Kidney Transplant Conversations, episode 12. In our last episode, we heard Daryl's story, how he needed a kidney transplant because of kidney cancer. He'd used a variety of resources to help find a donor, including the National Kidney Foundation materials that are available as part of the program The Big Ask, The Big Give. And we discussed how people close to him helped get the word out that he needed a donor and how it felt to receive the gift of life. This week, we meet Jim, who responded to the big ask and donated a kidney to Daryl. Jim shares with us his side of the story, explaining why doing this was so important to him. And Jim also discusses how he feels he has benefited from the experience. And later in this episode, Dr. Adam Bregman joins us to talk about his experience with kidney patients using resources from the Big Ask the Big Give program, helping to find their own living donor. We also discuss the extent of health disparities in kidney disease and some of their causes. Kidney Transplant Conversations is underwritten by Veloxis Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and all views and opinions expressed in the podcast reflect those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Veloxis Pharmaceuticals or the producers. So welcome Jim Norwood to Kidney Transplant Conversations. Thank you. Happy to be here. And in our conversation today, I'm hoping we can share some insights into the process of becoming a kidney transplant donor that you experienced so that other donors and donor recipients can better understand all that entails. So let's start with a little bit of background. How did you become uh, um, friends with your eventual recipient, Daryl? Because I know you guys go back a long way. Daryl and I, uh, we met in 2000. Uh, We were at the Command and General Staff Officer College, which is an Army school. Uh, our families were with us, and we ended up being neighbors. You know, there were 50 or so couples in this cul-de-sac, this condominium cul-de-sac. You know, so we immediately had all these friends, and our kids had all these friends. Daryl and Pam, his wife, and our kids just just hit it off. Uh, and you know, we we lived right next door to each other. So wonderful. And how long ago was that? That was in 2000. And so we were there for about 11 months. We did some different adventures together. We went skiing together locally, uh, went out to dinner, had some barbecues, that kind of thing. We just became really good friends. And, you know, Daryl and I realized that uh, we started calling each other brother uh, because we have a lot in common and we just, you know, had that special connection. We just felt really comfortable with each other. And how did you come to learn that Daryl was in need of a kidney? It was probably 18, 19 years later. And my wife told me that Daryl was having problems. He had lost a kidney, had kidney cancer. He was likely to lose the other one. You know, I reached out, wished him the best, hope everything would be okay. And it was probably a couple of years later that they had sent a, an email out friends, family connections, just kind of explaining Daryl's situation. At this point, I want to say he'd been on dialysis maybe two years, two and a half years. And my wife, we were, we were actually eating out 
And she said, would you consider donating? And I said, absolutely. I've got two. He needs one. So, so why not give up one if I can? And uh, that kind of started the process in a very informal manner over, over dinner. And that was just you and your wife talking about situation with a friend. It was. And then once uh, my wife realized that, that I was serious, uh, she reached out to Pam, uh, Daryl's wife. They put us in touch with the, the coordinator at uh, UNC, and uh, I began the process. Was it a difficult conclusion for you to come to to start that process? I mean, did you really wrestle with it? Or did it feel like, oh, this is like the natural, this is like a natural, obvious decision? I never wrestled with the decision. Uh, it just seemed like something that I should do. You know, if I could help Daryl, then that would help his family. They're a wonderful family. Daryl's a wonderful person. You know, he had a, a young granddaughter. Michelle and I had just been informed that we were going to be grandparents. And I just started, you know, thinking about his family, you know, how they would feel if something, you know, if Daryl were to, if things were to go south, so to speak. And so I, I, you know, I just wanted to help him and help the family. Did you tell him right away that you were considering this? Or did you kind of go for an assessment first to make sure that it was a possibility? No, I, I, I told him uh, that I was interested uh, and that I had been contacted by UNC, that I had, uh, you know, done the blood draw and everything, and that it, it, it appeared initially that I was a match. And, you know, I mean, he was very, very humble, very grateful. It was still too early in the process, you know, for me to be recognized as a, as a valid match for him. But... I did kind of keep him informed as I would go through the different stages of tests. And what kind of tests did you did you have to go through? <laughs> they checked me out thoroughly. I had to do a couple of stress tests. The I forget what the procedure's called, but where they insert the dye and they track it through your system, MRIs, CAT scans. I want to say I went up there three times. Each time I went, there was at least two days of tests. So once they cleared me to donate, you know, I felt really confident that I was in good shape, that I could handle it, um, and that uh, you know this this hopefully would be a good thing for Daryl. It must have been quite an amazing journey to suddenly find yourself on, with all of this kind of technology and testing and possibilities. It was. At the time that I donated the kidney, I was 58 years old, and I thought to be in reasonably good health. I've always kind of taken care of myself. Um, but just to have all that validated, you know, by the testing, by the professionals, uh, um, them reassuring me that my quality of life would not change, uh, that I could continue to live my life as I had in the past, uh, you know, it just that all gave me kind of a, a sense of confidence that everything was going to be OK. What about thinking kind of ahead to the future and spending the rest of your life with one kidney and potentially having a financial impact from from that whole process? What were your thoughts around that and what kind of discussions did you have around that? I, I really didn't focus on the finances so much. 
because early in the process, you know, Daryl had informed me about um, his GoFundMe site through the Kidney Foundation that they were going to cover, uh, you know, travel expenses, little things like that, that his insurance would cover, you know, the hospital stay and all that. And the, the kidney coordinator and their team, you know, that's part of the process. They want to educate you on everything from the finances, the insurance, you know, all the way to later in life and, and things like that. Plus, as a as a retired soldier, I have Tricare Insurance, uh, which is really good program. Uh, as a business owner, I have my own insurance as well. Uh, so I just I was in a good position to not have to worry about a lot of things that probably a lot of people do. And what about your kind of wider family, friends and family? Um, did you let people know that you were going through this process and, and what kind of um, response did you get? It's kind of unusual. It is. You know, my, my kids wanted to know more. My, my boys wanted to know more. They're both adult, adult men, uh, but they wanted to better understand the process. And, you know, after the donation, kind of the back end, the recovery and uh, would I be okay? You know, that's kind of what I got from my sister and, and my in-laws. Uh, they just wanted to really better understand the process. And it's funny you mentioned um, it's funny you mentioned your age at the time. You were 58. Obviously, because I'm talking to so many people about kidney transplant, the thought has crossed my mind, well, could I be a donor? And I guess I kind of thought, well, I'm probably a little too old to do that, but clearly not. <laughs> No, it's a, um, the team, the transplant team told me, they said, well, you know, you're, you're not definitely not the youngest, but you're definitely not the oldest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it really just comes down to, you know, are, are you physically a match? And then what kind of shape are you in? Like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm retired army, but I still go to the gym and work out seven days a week. Uh, that's, I just do that for me. That's not something that I started because I was going to donate a kidney. So I've always just, you know, tried to take care of the of my body. Yeah, it just goes to show being physically active, it's, it's, it's key. So, Jim, how do you feel now? You've been through this process. Has it changed you? I think it's changed me for the better. You know, I kind of look at things uh, a little differently. I, I'm happy to be able to, to help Daryl. I'm more patient, more humble. So I, 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 think it, I think it's helped me. In terms of your kind of overall experience, how could it have been better? And I'm thinking really here, you know, for like some of the obstacles you came across or some of the, some of the, some of the ways you kind of went into the process. Could it have been made better? Do you have suggestions on how um, kind of becoming a donor could be, be improved? I don't think I do. You know, UNC Chapel Hill, they have the process down. And so my perspective is only, you know, towards that one facility, that one institution. They knew what they were doing, just their whole process, any question, concern, they were able to address it a lot of times before I would even ask the question. What's interesting is I made this donation right in the middle of COVID. Uh, originally it was scheduled for March and then it got pushed to May. Uh, and that frustrated me because, you know, I had my game face on, I was ready to go in March. Um, 
you know, that I had to get my game face on again and, and go in May. And Daryl and I walked into the hospital without our families. They were not allowed. Um, and it was, you know, UNC was very accommodating, uh, keeping the families informed. Uh, it's, it's a rather long procedure, you know, four and a half, five hours on the table. But when I woke up, you know, my wife was there in the room with me and it just, they took really good care of me. So they did an amazing job at a really difficult time. Well, it's really, really wonderful to hear your story. Really appreciate, you know, the insights that you've shared. What would you, what would you say to um, other people who are thinking about donating, who are maybe considering that they might give this gift for somebody? I think that anyone is cons- that's considering it, you know, my hat is off to them. Uh, it is something very special uh, for you as well as the recipient. And it's, it's not too often that you get to help somebody in that way and potentially save a life. Jim, thanks so much for uh, joining Kidney Transplant Conversations today. And uh, thanks for your service and thanks for what you've done for Daryl, who um, I now feel connected to, having heard his life story. The good news is, is that Daryl's doing really well, you know, living a full life, not tied to a machine and, and dialysis anymore. We do get together once a year, kind of a reunion every May. So this will be our second reunion coming up and uh, his family. That must feel quite emotional when you get together. It is. It's, it's a very special event, you know, and a lot of, a lot of people don't realize, but, you know, Daryl is, is African-American and I'm Caucasian. He's six foot three, I'm five foot 10. And they just stare at us when we call each other brother and see us out together. You know, it's regardless of demographics, I love him. He's my brother, I love their family. And as they say, all kidneys are pink. <laughs> yes, they are. Now we're going to talk with Dr. Adam Bregman. He's a transplant nephrologist at the University of Minnesota Medical Center and also an assistant professor in medical nephrology at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Bregman, welcome to Kidney Transplant Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we are today talking about the benefits of living donor donation and also talking about how we can help the process of asking for a kidney donor. And National Kidney Foundation has got a terrific program called Big Ask, Big Give. And I know you've been working with that program with some of your patients, and I'm looking forward to getting some insights into how that's working for you um, at University of Minnesota Medical Center. But first, could you give us some information about what is the current status of living donor transplants in the context of overall donation and also how that is potentially affecting wait list and waiting times uh, for a kidney transplant? You know, in 2019, before the, uh, before the pandemic hit, it was a record-breaking year for living donor kidney transplant. There were um, almost 6,900 living donor kidney transplants in the country. That decreased due to the pandemic to uh, just over 5,200 when many centers briefly paused their living donor programs, but then subsequently rebounded to about 6,000 in 2021. Just to put that into context, there were 
24,669 kidney transplants in 2021. So living donor kidney transplants accounted for 21.2% of all of kidney transplants uh, at that time. So, you know, about 40,000 patients are added to um, the waiting list for a kidney transplant each year for such a scarce and vital resource. And at any one time, there's about 140,000 patients that are waitlisted for, for a kidney alone. Overall, the, the amount of patients on the waiting list has remained relatively stable over time, despite increasing the amounts of living donor kidney transplant and deceased donor kidney transplant with uh, the improved regulation of kidney transplants in the country. So if you are waiting for a kidney transplant, depending on the region that you're in and the blood type that you are or the amount of antibodies that you have on markers to other people's kidneys, you can wait from anywhere from one year to eight years, depending on a variety of characteristics. But just some statistics for patients that were waitlisted in 2016, 36.5% were still waiting for a kidney in 2019. 23% of them underwent a deceased donor transplant, 13.5% underwent a living donor kidney transplant, and 20% were removed from the list. And we haven't even been able to calculate the, uh, the average waiting time um, for a kidney transplant in over a decade because 50% of the candidates on the waiting list haven't undergone transplant since 2008 for a variety of, of reasons. So it really is in your best interest if you need a kidney transplant to try to get a living donor kidney transplant. And it sounds like the number of living donor transplants that is taking place is trending up. Uh, it's not a steep rise. It's a very gradual. That is correct. You know, I, 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 I would love that if, uh, you know, if, if living donor kidney transplant would, would comprise, you know, 80 or 100 percent of, of our um, of our total transplants. But, yeah, you know, even though it is increasing uh, in number, but because we're increasing the amount of overall transplants um, that are being done by being maybe more aggressive with the deceased donor organs that are utilized, um, the percentage overall remains, uh, remains the same. So obviously, it's a great solution for someone um, who needs a transplant to have a deceased donor transplant. It's a, it's a much better solution than, say, remaining on dialysis in the long term. Um, but why would a receiving a living donor kidney transplant be even better? I'd like to explain that with, uh, with some statistics. Okay. So this is, this is data from, um, from the orbit organ procurement transplant network from, for transplants, kidney transplants performed between 2008 and 2015. Okay. One year kidney graft survival. Okay. For a living donor organ was 97.5%. And for a deceased donor was 93.2%. At three years, it was 92.5% for living donors and 85% for deceased donors. And then at five years, 85.6% for living donors and 74.4% for deceased donors. So you can see, you know, using that data that the kidneys last longer if, um, if they come from a living donor. And what is not reflected in that data is that they typically work immediately. There's a very, a lot lower of a risk for needing dialysis, even for a few sessions after transplant. So, you know, not to downplay 
deceased donor transplant at all, it is um, it is life saving and life prolonging. But if given the the choice between living donor and deceased donor, one would um, certainly want a, a living donor kidney transplant. Plus the added benefit that potentially you could be waiting a far, a far shorter period for a living donor transplant. But you do have to go through a process which you kind of have to lead yourself. So we'll come on to that um, a little bit later. Um, has, has living donation become easier and safer? Has, has surgery changed? Um, and what protections or supports are in place for, for living donors? Because obviously they face some kind of financial and insurance implications. So yes, li- living donation has certainly um, become safer. For the donor, from a nephrologist standpoint, when I evaluate a potential donor, um, I want them to understand the potential risks of kidney injury and kidney failure themselves. But in general terms, the the donor rate of end-stage kidney disease doesn't exceed the end-stage kidney disease rate in the general population, even after taking out one of their kidneys. That is because our donors are relatively healthy, well-selected. They don't have protein in their urine, high blood pressure, diabetes. Um, you know, depending on the on the risk factors of the of the donor, whatever conditions that they may have, their increase in, in risk for for kidney failure in their lifetimes could be six to twelve times the the rate before donation. But keep in mind. That is the absolute risk is very, very small, as in like, you know, point like 0.3 percent to 0.6 percent after donation, uh, you know, uh, 20 year end stage kidney disease rate, uh, risk. So, you know, in a in a paper that, that I was reading, 20, the 20 year end stage kidney disease risk in the average donor is 0.34 percent. And that is actually lower than the risk of the general population. And, you know, now we have a lot more calculators and models to predict risk based on donor factors like age, BMI, uh, systolic blood pressure to identify higher risk donors and, you know, be able to warn them of the possible risk. And then the surgical complications such as wound infection and hernia have also decreased now that most centers are using either laparoscopic hand-assisted donation or robotic techniques rather than open techniques. So, so that means it's a, a very small incision? Yes, it, it, is, fa- it is fairly small. The actual uh, incision, the largest incision will be where the kidney comes out. Okay, so, you know, we're, we're, we're talking maybe uh, six inches or so to your previous point about the protections or, or support. You know, I think that we've really made strides in the last uh, in the last few years. So recipient insurance typically covers donor medical expenses. So that means the evaluation, the donor surgery, the follow up appointments, the follow up blood tests. But the National Living Donor Assistance Center, the LNDAC, um, has resources that can provide reimbursement for travel, lost wages, and dependent care expenses. In addition, there are grants through the American Transplant Foundation, and individual centers may have resources as well, as well as um, certain paired exchange programs that have their own benefits. You know, lastly, the, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act um, has made it illegal to deny coverage or increase premiums 
for organ donors. So a, an organ donor does not need to be concerned about being denied health insurance in the future. So there really has been a lot of progress in the, in the area of general support. Um, you mentioned NLDAC, and we already scheduled a future episode to talk with the team there um, and take a little bit of a deeper dive into how that whole program works, who is eligible, and what they will, what financial support they will provide. So um, it's exciting to see all of those things come, uh, falling into place. I think one of the one of the concerns we we've seen on the on the podcast and previous episodes is is the fact that we do see differences in terms of um, access to transplant and length of time spent on dialysis um, with minority populations. So we see a disparity for African Americans, um, for Hispanics, and also for Asians. Could you talk a little bit about what are the reasons for those disparities so we can kind of understand how we can work to address them? Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, you're right. It's extremely unfortunate that that is occurring, that there is decreased access for patients of color. So just to kind of give you an idea, non-Hispanic and Black patients um, are four times more likely than patients who are non-Hispanic and white to have kidney disease, but only half as likely to undergo kidney transplant. Black patients have disproportionately lower rates of living donor kidney transplant. And these racial disparities persist even after accounting for medical differences. There was actually a recent study in C. Jason in 2021 that showed that even after accounting for the social determinants of health, Black patients had a lower likelihood of kidney transplant by 26%. They were 51% less likely to get a living donor kidney transplant, but they actually didn't find any, uh, any differences in deceased donor kidney transplant. You know, talking about reasons why these disparities may exist, it's complicated. It could be due to one of three categories or, or even parts of each one. So access to care, meaning being referred at an appropriate time. You can be referred for evaluation for a kidney transplant once your GFR, your glomerular filtration rate, reaches 20 milliliters per minute. Potentially, they don't start seeing a nephrologist until uh, until later. Issues related to outcome after kidney transplant. So meaning the patient needs to be aware of what kidney transplant is, want to go through the process, and then following through with care, having the ability to go to the doctor, whether that means, you know, having access to, to transportation. And there are certainly some, you know, funds that one will need to, to purchase their medication, even with the assistance of, uh, of insurance. A few things that have been done in the last few years to, um, to try to remedy this disparity was trying to eliminate the estimated GFR correction for race which could delay referral for transplant evaluation. So that's been changed for a lot of health centers in the, in the past few years, because before that, African-Americans would have a correction such that their GFR was estimated to be higher than the same creatinine for a white person, so that maybe their estimated GFR was 23 milliliters per minute instead of 20 milliliters per minute which would delay their, um, their referral for, for kidney transplant. And then in addition, the UNOS decision to eliminate priority allocation for HLA-B antigen 
So basically a marker on cells that can be in a higher preponderance in blacks was eliminated in 2003. And that led to a 20% reduction in disparity in rates of deceased donor kidney transplant between minority and white recipients in terms of waiting time. We certainly have a lot of room for improvement. And, you know, by no means is, um, is it completely equitable right now. It sounds like there are some barriers that are being reduced. Um, I just actually had my, uh, my annual checkup and I noticed that there was a notification on my, uh, on my kidney data to say that they were removing the distinction. Yes. Um, and that was on that. So I think that's an automated thing that and it just goes to show these things are actually built into the electronic health record. And that, that difference for EGFR between African-Americans and other patients historically was really just based on bias. It wasn't based on scientific reality. Yes, by and large, absolutely. You know, and I think that we need to take each patient individually, a frail 70-year-old woman with a creatinine of one and a, um, and a muscular 25-year-old man with a creatinine of one obviously have very different kidney function. Okay, because of the difference in in muscle mass. So I I don't think that it was fair for um, for there to be a correction factor for blacks when that potential recipient could be bed bound or less muscular than somebody else. So I, I do think that it was a step in the in the right direction. So what are the challenges with increasing living donor transplantation? We realized that there were a lot more challenges during the the pandemic. So canceled transplants, not being able to meet colleagues or friends in person to either ask or even increase awareness in uh, for a living donor kidney transplant, because those people may potentially have been donors in, in the past if they knew about a person's medical issues. But I, I think, you know, as a whole, the... Ability to see uh, potential donors in a timely fashion um, is is certainly important to speed up evaluations and uh, increase the number of living donor kidney transplants. And, you know, not all centers are involved in paired exchange. So paired exchange in, involves donating a kidney to someone that is not your intended recipient in order to have your intended recipient get um, a well-matched and well-functioning uh, living donor kidney. So it, you may know that there are multiple um, paired exchange programs in the country, two, two main ones, and not all centers are involved in it at all. And you have some centers in one and some centers in the other. So I think that in order to really increase the amount of living donor kidney transplants, especially for patients that have a lot of antibodies or, you know, have, say, O blood type, which they can only receive an O organ by and large, I think we really need to have one uh, paired exchange network for the entire country. And then not to mention our donor pool is decreasing because of the increased incidence of obesity, metabolic syndrome, and diabetes, um, you know, in this country. So we wouldn't want to take a, ki a kidney from somebody who has diabetes because of their potential risk of diabetic kidney disease and subsequent failure potentially in their lifetime. So that's really a fundamental preventive health challenge that we have in the United States because right. um, the increase in obesity rates 
has continued. It keeps going. It just keeps going up. We've got reduced physical activity, increased obesity rates. And so that's reducing the pool of, of patients who are available to actually um, donate a kidney, whether it's a living donation or whether it's a deceased donor donation. And, you know, the donor may, the, the potential donor may actually have the same disease that led to kidney failure in their intended recipient. And, you know, the uh, type 2 diabetes, diabetic nephropathy is the leading cause of kidney failure in, in the Western world. You know, from conversations we've had with patients on kidney transplant conversations, it's pretty clear that sometimes it appears to the patient that going through the transplant process, whether it's asking, patients asking for a living donation from people they know or from their family, or whether it's thinking about the additional finances and the complexity of it, it can seem like a much heavier lift than just staying on dialysis. And uh, we had one patient who recently uh, was talking about his journey where he spent 19 years on dialysis before receiving a transplant. Wow. And it wasn't that he was waiting for a transplant for 19 years. It was for a lot of that time. He really didn't want to be in the process. He felt he felt some reservations about going into the process. So I so I think it's um, it's interesting to talk about what's happening with um, the Big Ask, Big Give program which National Kidney Foundation has put together and, and, is, and is being used by many, many centers, um, because it seems like part of the barrier is, is kind of having the, having, knowing what to say. Have you been using the program with your patients and what kind of, what kind of experiences have you had? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we, we've been a part of Big Ask, Big Give for, um, for, um, for a little bit now. And, and, you know, I've only been at the University of Minnesota now for, um, for a year and a half, but I've already seen um, its benefits that we, that we have successfully transplanted a number of, uh, of patients living with living donor kidneys from people they ask because of the, the tools and tips that they learn from Big Ass, Big Give. So, you know, learning about the perspectives of the uh, of the recipient from the resources and and seeing the the tips that they have to to overcome the fear of asking for a kidney, how to ask, um, and ideas to increase awareness, such as sharing um, your story on social media and being ready for to answer certain questions about concerns that a prospective donor may have has really opened my eyes to, um, to how important of a resource this is. And, and, you know, we've seen it in, in real time that we've seen an increase in amount of living donor kidney transplants being done at our center from people that have gotten living donors from um, just from this uh, program, from learning how to ask. What is it fundamentally about, the process within the program or the tips within the program, do you think that kind of uh, moves people into that, into that zone of being successful with asking for a kidney? It uses stories that of people that were in the same situation as, as a person that is waiting for a kidney transplant that, you know, it, it's obviously a vulnerable um, position, but it, it allows them kind of to, to have a helping hand from someone that's that's gone through the the same thing. So, and using the tips that a previous person has used to become successful and and um, and realize their dream of getting a living donor kidney transplant. So, I, I think it's uh, an amazing resource, and and I tell each and every one of my 
potential recipients that I'm evaluating to um, to go and look at the resources on MKF for Big Ask Big Give. So it sounds like a big part of it is kind of like getting over this idea, be, being comfortable with the idea. It's okay to ask. It's okay to say no, and it's okay to say yes. These are all good. Right. These are all good conversations. But if you don't have the conversation, you're not gonna you're not gonna make progress. Yeah, and you know it, it's uh, it's surprising sometimes who would be willing to um, who would be willing to be evaluated and who would be willing to to donate. But just as you said, if you don't ask, you know the answer is never going to be yes. Wonderful. Well, we actually are talking with uh, Jennifer from National Kidney Foundation very soon, um, and she's going to give us a, a deeper dive into into the program and, and how it works and 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 how uh, how people can engage with that. It sounds like the process of big ask, big give could bring someone into the, into the into being prepared to uh, donate a kidney. Then you might find that that kidney is not compatible with the recipient you could still donate that kidney to somebody else and do a swap so ultimately, the person that you want uh, you wanted to give a kidney to gets a kidney um, that that is a good match so that exchange, that exchange process is really important i i completely agree and and um especially with people having needing more than one transplant in in their lives as um as our long-term um graft survival increases we're going to see more subsequent uh transplant needs and, and those patients may be a little bit more difficult to match um so and not to mention that paired exchange you know in not you're not just helping one person you're helping multiple you're helping everyone in that chain because Without you as a donor, the, the chain would not exist. Dr. Bregman, it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for sharing all your insights and really important information. Just in closing, is there anything else you would like to, to add or share about living donation and transplant? First off, thank you so much for having me. This, is, uh, this has been a, a pleasure. But, you know, I, I just want to tell people that are trying to get a kidney transplant you know, although the, the prospect of xenotransplantation is exciting, like, you know, pig kidneys, you hear about it in the, uh, in the news, and the possibility of implantable artificial kidneys in the next few years, kidney transplant is, it still remains the treatment of choice for kidney failure in terms of quality of life, freedom from dialysis, fluid and dietary restriction, and longevity. Living donation can take away the need for dialysis at all by getting a preemptive transplant. You have less waiting time, better function, immediate function, and improved survival. So I just want our potential recipients to, um, you know, to be aware of that. It's the treatment of choice. It's the best choice right now and will probably remain so for a long time. Yes. I look forward to um, the the new advances in the field over, um, you know, over the next uh, 30 or something years that I'll, that I'll be practicing transplant nephrology. I, I really don't see a way at least in the next 20 or so years that living donor kidney transplant won't be the, the preferred treatment of choice for kidney failure. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for joining us and we hope to see you again on the podcast in the future. I'd love to be here. Thank you so much. 
And many thanks to Jim and to Dr. Adam Bregman for joining us today. In our next episode, we'll be hearing from the National Living Donor Assistance Centre about the financial help they can provide to people planning on donating a kidney for transplant. And we'll talk with Risa Simon about the Donor Seeker Programme. Thanks again to our underwriters for Loxus Pharmaceuticals, and thanks for listening. Be safe and be well. Copyright Project Advocacy 2022.